Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome to Training with Casey. I'm Casey Cover, your host, and I am thrilled to be here today with Kim Brophy, who's an applied ethologist. Hi, Kim. Hi, Casey. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's really a pleasure. And Kim and I uh, crossed paths close to 20 years ago. You're going to tell on us how old we are, Casey. Oh, careful. No. <laughs> it was like that three that years like ago, yesterday. maybe? Yeah. yeah. Seems like yesterday. Yeah. And didn't get a chance to talk at that time. And now I'm finding out that I so wish we had talked then. Because I feel like I have cheated myself out of uh, a, a collaborator and, uh, you know, somebody to work with that I actually can really understand where you're coming from and that we're going in a lot of the same directions. So I know that you're an applied ethologist and um let's just start talking about it so i have a whole bunch of questions that i was going to ask you but we can do that another time let's just talk about what is driving you nuts about the way we are stewarding animals Mm. where to begin (laughs) um you know, I, I did a TED talk a few years ago and the topic of it being the problem with treating a dog like a pet. Provocative title, right? Because everyone's like, what do you mean? Like dogs are pets, like they love it. It's their lot in life. And so I think it's a good starting point for just kind of pulling the curtain back on some stuff, right? Which is that we've scripted dogs just in the last 10 or 20 years into this idea that literally their place in life is to be our captive, which is just a pragmatic honest term. It's not a um, uh, characterization. It's just that's the the life that we're keeping most dogs in these days where they are rotating between leashes, crates, houses, fences, exclusively most pet dogs living in urban environments. And with 99% of American pet homes being in big cities, that's a lot of dogs living in highly captive situations, right? So um, a lot of us don't remember dogs living with humans before that reality. And we've kind of bought into the idea that no matter what they look like, what they were bred for, what their history was, that they're all just meant to be our pets and we'll be completely grateful if we just do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, basic list of things all dogs need, everything will be fine. And yet dog behavior problems are absolutely going through the roof. There's never been a higher demand for trainers and professionals. I wonder why. So for me, my, my primary interest is in complete welfare. And um, there's a a new definition of welfare I read from a German uh, uh, ethologist recently that I really liked another good one for me to put in the bag, which is integrity of form and function. And he talks about how you could actually do some really good work because you could make that very quantitative um, by looking as a point of reference at what that animal's niche was evolutionarily. So if we're talking about wild animals, we can look at what that form and function looks like in nature. And then we can compare the the animal's reality and captivity with whether or not they are able to, given the form and the function that they inherited, be able to interact with their environment as they continue to learn in that environment, adapt to some changing conditions, all of which is normal in nature as they evolve and as as an individual and um, continue to grow. And so what's so interesting with dogs is that we don't apply these kinds of natural sciences to them in general. So even a lot of things we understand about animals in captivity and zoos and farms, we're not applying those same understandings of, say, concepts like zoocosis and what can happen when an animal's developing stereotypical and dysfunctional behavior in their conditions because that environment doesn't afford them the opportunity to express who they are in that form of and function as an individual. So instead, in this culture, in this moment in the industry with pet dogs, we have this idea like obedience is everything. And then we have kind of pat ourselves on the back for mastering how animals learn. So we have gotten better and better at becoming these puppeteers of their behavior in changing 
manipulating, if we're being frank, the expression of their behavior in ways that we find amusing or easier to live with and things like that. And there hasn't been a lot of discussion other than what methods we think are most humane and kind about that animal's overall welfare as an individual, how much autonomy they have, again, how much opportunity they have to express natural behavior, whether their social lives are as rich as they evolved and then were selected to be, things like that. Um, and I think it's a massive deficit. I, I, I'm concerned that we've gotten insular in the world of behaviorism and applied behavior analysis as the only contributing scientific lens. And even further, as you and I were discussing a moment ago, um, that we we don't even completely understand that. Um, I loved your line that you said a moment ago. I have to share it with everybody else because I wrote it down. You said, obedience is a very blunt instrument for teaching animals behavior. Um, and, and I think it's it's ironic and fascinating that we as an industry continue to argue about the best way to make our dogs obedient as opposed to, gee, why are they behaving this way in the first place? And how can we look at their behavior as attempted adaptations to these not so natural modern conditions. So that's my nutshell of a soapbox, but obviously I've got a lot of rabbit holes in there too. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course you do. Of course we do. So um, first of all, I was immediately thinking about the fact that even in the wild, animals' needs are you know, not, Adjust. In other words, if we really, if our real goal is to have the best lives with and for our animals, the best welfare, the best, um, you know, richness and everything else, I think we have to even go beyond nature. And here's one reason I say that. I have been a beekeeper and bees are amazing because mostly they do what they're supposed to do. But even as they get more experience, then a bee doesn't live very long. I think the average lifespan is only 49 days. But as they get older, sometimes even before that, they don't fit into the hole that is given to them in their bee society. And those bees are driven out of the hive and killed. So when I'm, when I look at myself and my behavior, when I look at the animals around me, I don't want to set them into any projection that I create. I want to work together to find their passions as well as mine. So I mostly deal with people with severe behavior issues with their dogs. So the dog is about to not be in captivity anymore. You know, he's going to be euthanized or something. And we've developed some really effective ways to help those dogs work their own way out of those problems. But then they need a chance to be a dog. They need to be able to express their own passions. And so we work a lot with people. What? do you think your dog would love to do that you would like to do with your dog? Where you become a team and you're both doing that. And this one lady had um, a world-class German shepherd and it wanted to kill everything, equal opportunity. And she got that all squared away. And then it's like, this dog is so smart. If you don't allow her to exercise her intelligence, to get recognition for her abilities and all these things. She will come up with another problem perhaps, but you guys can have a lot of fun if you get ahead of the curve. So their particular thing was they worked on SAR, search and recovery, and the dog loved it. And she got her certification like two months, which is really short. Normally it's a two year program. I didn't certify the dog. It was certified by an outside group that does that. Anyway, but that's the kind of thing, you know, like people make all kinds of erroneous conclusions about animals. So I worked extensively with exotic animals and people will say things like, oh, that's a wild animal. So you can't get close to it, right? Well, 
sometimes right, but sometimes you can get really, really close to the animal and the friendships are extremely deep Mm -hmm. and we have the same problems. For example, if an animal, an exotic animal or any animal loses a mate or gets moved, they have a three times greater than normal chance of dying or getting sick for an entire year. Mm-hmm. So there's things like that, that, you know, in zoos, one of the big issues is that we also need at least 600 genetically diverse individuals to have a viable gene pool. And so how do you manage the genetics where you can only have a few of these animals in any zoo? So they're managed internationally. That's resulted in a lot of animals being moved around mm. and a lot of problems associated with that. And that is heartbreaking for the keepers, for the other animals on both sides. And so it's just really complex. We need to look at this anew and not just one time, but over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So one, um, as we add the problems with physiology, which of course is very important mm-hmm. and uh, one of these, there's been a lot of people that have been against marine mammals in managed care, as we call it. And they're not aware of the fact that, have you heard about the gene that causes marine mammals not to have legs? I know about the fact that most, well, marine mammals in particularly were at one point land mammals who then evolved back into niches in the ocean. And so at one point, their predecessors did have legs. Yeah. So there's a gene, I think it's H-P-O-E or H-O-E anyway. So I'll just confuse people with that. But the point of this gene is it caused their legs to become vestigial. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times there's like a little bone in the or near the hip of the animal, but it didn't develop into a leg. But then with some of the animals like seals and sea lions, they do actually have shortened legs or the kind of mm-hmm. like the corgis of the uh, animal world. But that gene causes them not to be able to break down organophosphate toxins. Mm-hmm. And the scientists working on this are predicting that with the levels of rising pollution in the wild and other changing conditions that all marine mammals will be extinct by the turn of the century for the absence of this gene. Hmm. So there have been phenomenal work done by places like SeaWorld and so on to try to help this to try to help the um, Southern resident orca population, which is starving to death. And yet they're getting all this flack from so-called animal rights organizations that come right out and say, they don't care if all the animals die, just so long as they're not with people because that is inhumane, blah, 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 blah. And it doesn't matter Like there's no amount of citing the fact that uh, you remember Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, it came and wiped out marine animal productions and washed all their dolphins out to sea. And some weeks later, the trainers are like, I wonder if they need anything there. They somehow got, I don't know if somebody saw the dolphins jumping or whatever, but they went out in boats looking to see what was going on with these dolphins. And when the dolphins saw them, they were like, whoo, doing flips and bows and everything else out of the water. But the owner of Marine Animal Productions was 85. He didn't want to build another park. And even if he did, it would take a long time. So he went to work to see about finding a good home for this group of dolphins. And he found one. It's in the Bahamas at the Atlantis uh, Hotel. And then these dolphins were all part of traveling shows. They would go from fair to park, whatever, in the summertime. 
So they would swim out onto a deck, onto what they call a sling, and there's little windows and they put their um, pectoral flippers through the windows and then they get raised by a crane and suspended on a box of ice. And it's always open on the top because if they lose their consciousness, they will suffocate. And so these animals had all this experience. They knew exactly what the drill was. So they kept coming on to, you know, they kept trying to come up into the boat and everything. So they came out with something like a barge and every single one of the dolphins came up into a sling. They're like, we want back in. So they all got transported to animal, to uh, the hotel. And the thing about it is that even before that happened, there's all these dolphinariums and everything on the coast of the you know, United States and other countries too. And what people don't realize is for generations, even these dolphins were coming and going on their own. And the USDA came in and said, you can't do that. And there's some good reasons for that, but there was another good reason to quit. And that was because of the pollution in the water and the um, plankton, like red tide and blue-green algae can both be absolutely toxic. And so we can't expose the animals to their own water. And there's some brilliant people down in Florida that um, this is called Dolphins Plus, and they've taught their animals to come out of the water and accept drinks of water with charcoal in it because that absorbs the toxins because these dolphins had developed kind of like an addiction to some of the seaweeds that had toxins. So they come and these dolphins are like, woo, yeah, that was a great high. And so when they started feeding them this charcoal water, that totally stopped that particular problem. Like there was no more high. Anyway, the point of this is not to make a case for marine mammals in managed care, although that case definitely deserves and needs to be made. The point is to say that you cannot look at these things superficially. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are not ready to clean up the oceans, if you are not ready to reassess how you think of animal intelligence, mm -hmm. if you're not interested in the evidence that they present, because you know it all. If you're not willing to read across disciplines, mm -hmm. then we've got a big problem because this, the whole issue of all of us surviving, I mean, you know, we like to think that if we linked our survival with the survival of animals, that's a big thing in zoos, right? We're trying to teach the people about the animals so they'll want to take care of them and therefore their environments and they'll see how they're associated with that. But the reality is even people that are, you know, their house is in danger of burning down because the forests are so dry and the temperatures are so hot and all these other problems that are related to climate change they're not moving to action. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, like um, I was mentioning earlier um, before we started the show about the one health and the one welfare models, right? So that's very yeah, much- Yeah, so let's talk about that because that is- Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you I a little bit that I know. Um, I'm, I'm just at the forefront of really diving into it, but I actually- so I found it about eight years ago and I was, it really resonated with me. And then I rediscovered it um, in the, in recent weeks while I was preparing my talk for the upcoming dogs in the city conference in Toronto, which is very exciting because it's all about what is big city life like for our dogs in the 21st century. Right. Um, now in this age of the Anthropocene post, you know, industrial revolution, 1950s, everything has changed um, for not just us, but every species on the planet, including our dogs. And, 
the idea as I was, you know, doing all of this research and I'm, and I'm reading all, as you say, across all of these different disciplines to understand, you know, all of these elements of our, not just in big cities, but our modern world, right? Like what is going on um, and, and what are the things that we need to take inventory of as a discussion of what's affecting our dog? By default, we end up taking an inventory of how things are affecting us and other species. Um, and that's very much the the value system of one health or one welfare. Um, one health being more kind of medically oriented, and one welfare being more like you know emotional, psychological, behavioral health, et cetera. Um, the idea is is that because we're a, a multitude of tiny ecosystems within the greater planetary ecosystem, there's no um, there's no islands. Nobody's existing in a vacuum as a species or an individual or anything. So everything that we're doing is affecting everyone else. So we can't take care of our human needs without also taking care of the needs of the animals and the environment that supports them and us. You can look at it from a thousand different angles, from a biophilia lens in terms of like our natural neuroethology as every species of being oriented towards certain features and a landscape and the environment. We have to remember all the stuff out here that we think is normal. It's all been in just literally like the last century, you know, like the, the concrete jungles, the skyscrapers, the, the airplanes, the telephones, the internet, the, the radio waves. The radio waves, the EMFs. I mean, oh my goodness. Like I, that was a big component of my research was just the EMF stuff I found was unbelievable. And it's not even like conspiracy theory. It's it's very well established, established measurable data that we have about these things. We're going to have to do um, a podcast on that. I, I would love to, because that's a whole fun new rabbit hole for me, although it's terrifying because they just put a new cell tower within view of my backyard. Um, but now nobody can really like escape this stuff anymore. And last week I thought I saw a UFO. It turned out it was one of Elon Musk's stupid new satellites of a Starlink thing going through my backyard. It looked like an, a UFO. I research it and find out his goal is to cover the planet in them in the next 10 years. And just so everyone has great cell and phone service, but you can't see the stars anymore, you know, and you think about all the species that are dependent on, you know, signals from moons and stars and clouds and weather. I mean, the implications of our human arrogance are so profound. And yeah. one thing that struck me years ago was that dogs are kind of like our canary in the coal mine because they're at our feet. Yeah, you're and seeing them. You're seeing them, right? Whereas everything else we can kind of be like, la, 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 like, right? But with our dogs, they're right here. Their, their cries for help are their behavior problems, I very much believe. Because remember, now I don't have to say this to you, but to the general audience possibly, behavior problems don't happen in nature. Like behavior problems, right? Because there is a process for it gets selected against if it's not functional in that individual's trajectory of learning, it will get selected against. Oops, that didn't work. That's not working towards my survival. I think I'd better learn to not do that and do, do this. And you, you have to get removed from the gene pool. If you, exactly. Cause so you either will get selected against in your own individual behavior to where you adapt to your circumstances or you'll get selected against in the gene pool if you can't. But nature has a way of optimizing for functionality. And so we, when we take ourselves or our dogs out of that system, and then we end up doing all of these things that interrupt all of nature's system, we don't realize we're cutting off our nose to spite our face. You know, like we don't realize that we are, we're pulling the rug out from under ourselves. And it's, it's heartbreaking for me to continue to hear people characterize dog behavior problems as disobedience. You know, it's just yeah. simply not a, a, a well-trained dog when you're like, look, I don't question that you can train a dog to not do or do a variety of things that you want to do to incredibly remarkable, impressive ends. But the question is, should we? Because if that's the evidence, right, um, Amber Batson recently in her course, I have a couple colleagues that are taking it. I haven't taken it myself. I've just heard her speak. But she was, for instance, talking about how, like, in the interest of homeostasis, a lot of the, the behavior problems like stereotypies or the animal's way of trying to internally reconcile dysfunction. Right. So I'm going to, I need a relief. And because of my conditions of captivity or whatever, I get a signal in the environment that tells me to engage in a specific behavior, take a certain action that I can't take. And so then I, I do this substitute behavior, right? Like a stereotypy. 
And then I get a temporary relief for engaging in that behavior. So it's functional for the individual's coping. But we shouldn't look at, I just don't want to see the stereotypy. So I'm going to try to train away the stereotypy. We have to look at what's causing it, right? So we're getting, when we're getting these neurotic or excessive behaviors or, um, you know, incredibly emotionally unregulated, frustrated dogs, we have to ask why before we ask how to train them. I want to say a word there because I dealt with stereotypes, stereotypy a lot in my work. And one of the things that struck me is that when there is not a change in demand, that's when we get stereotypy. It's not necessarily that the animal's upset or anything like that. And for example, we had a polar bear, Donnie. And at the same time every day, he would do laps before he ate. What I now realize is that that's the perfect kind of exercise to both manage blood sugar and get blood sugar into the cells without needing insulin. Mm -hmm. And he would do this right before feeding time. Well, Strom Thurmond was a senator, I think maybe even from one of the Carolinas, and he was still a senator like into his 90s. And every day he would run a cycle, a circuit right in front of the National Zoo, I think. But anyway, it was exactly the same circuit every day at the same time. And he wasn't upset. It's just that he had the ability, the option to Put it into a certain time. This brings us to another problem, which is they estimate, they being um, various neuro uh, learning, not learning, people that work with the neuroscience of emotions. So Lisa Feldman Barrett wrote about it in her book, How We Construct Emotions, that by the time we're in our mid-30s, 90 to 95% of our behavior is conditioned responses that we're not even actually looking at what's out there in front of us. And this causes all kinds of issues because like you, people quit reading. They don't read a memo, you know, they just, they see it. And I guess they flash back to, something else similar like there's i'm getting i'm i'm okay i need to tie this together youtube can host all these videos because they don't actually transmit all the data in the videos they get the basic video and then they transmit only the changes in it so all your background and everything that's not being retransmitted every time your brain will do something very similar. If you have an experience that is similar to one that you've done before, especially if you've done it repeatedly, your brain will produce a memory that's kind of like either the average or the most prevalent one. You have to really work to actually see what's in front of you. Mm -hmm. I have seen so many weird aspects of that with animals and with people. And it's stuff like we have to be careful. Or we won't even be credible witnesses to what we experience. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, my um, we were hiking with my dad and he told one of us to stop. And we all stopped. And all of a sudden a shot rang out and I thought, whoa, did she make him angry? And it wasn't that he shot a snake underneath her foot. Mm -hmm. Later on, we were talking about it. And one of my sisters remembered it happening to her instead of the other one. So when we talked about it, she was like, oh, wow, it was as if it happened to me. And there's neuroscience that says every time we revisit a memory, we literally change it. Mm -hmm. So we are up against a real challenge 
because we are, you know, we're in an environment that's way more complex in certain ways, way more stimulus. You know, like it used to be you would grow up, learn how to farm or whatever and do that for the rest of your life. And now people change careers five times in a lifetime or more probably now. And they travel to all these different countries and they watch all these things and they play video games and all this. And they're actually not really in the real world at all. Like they're not subject to you. You just were talking about how we will get selected against Mm -hmm. if we don't have viable behavior. And yet now we protect children and so on. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but even if a child has really severe health problems, they're very likely to continue to live. Mm -hmm. And even if they have really severe behavioral problems, they're likely to get medicated and so on and not necessarily have relief from the problem. Mm -hmm. I don't have big suggestions on all this. I am just... Um, looking at the complexity of what we have in front of us. And I'm gratified that you're willing to look at that complexity. And then, all right, what do we do about it? Well, um, I, first of all, just accepting it, like you said, right? Because I think one of the things like that we have to appreciate is our brain, for one of the reasons you just mentioned, is always trying to be economical behavioral economics, economy of behavior, cornerstone principle and evolution is that it, unlike our world where we have to go make ourselves exercise and run around the block, you yeah. know, for, for the, for the entire world history up until the blink of humanity. And then the blink of just the last like hundred years where all of a sudden we're like sitting at our desk like this all day long and not out there having to use our bodies to survive. Yeah. But for every other species forever, it's like, you gotta be really economical about where you're spending that energy and so the the idea that the brain is trying to kind of oversimplify for saving energy, because once we're on habit or instinct or emotional reaction and it's not going through executive function, we're saving some energy, right? So as right. you said, we, we kind of max out the, the optimum sponge capacity of like new learning, but you can work to continue to expand that. I feel like that's a muscle we can all continue to flex and say, wait a minute, but it is more complicated than that. My brain wants to oversimplify it and have it feel like, oh, it's just like this. But if I'm really looking. We kind of have to face our true nature. Mm -hmm. You know, okay. So one of the places this came up for me is my father flew airplanes as a hobby. And he said, never get on a plane with someone that doesn't do a physical checklist. And when I was responsible for polar bears, all of a sudden I learned why. Because when you do something like that again and again, so um, before you go into a line and before you close the line, we would check five times. We go, as we went by the outside, we'd see where the bears were. Then when we went in the inside, we'd make sure that the bears weren't where they were, you know, and then we would close the doors. Mm -hmm. Then we come back and make sure all the doors were closed. Then we go outside again and make sure all the bears were where we thought they were. Then we go inside again. And one last time, because if you ever made a mistake, Mm -hmm. it would be the last thing you did. Well, Mm -hmm. you go down that line. And if somebody calls you with a commissary order or asks you a question or whatever, you cannot remember Mm -hmm. where you were in your checklist Mm -hmm. because you will see thousands and thousands. It's like you're playing a reel of memories in your mind of all these thousands of times you've done this and you can't discriminate what you just did. So if you don't have the date on the list and checking it off to say, I did this, this, and this, you just started again. And this is something that people, um, it, it can become a real ego thing. I saw a guy who was a helicopter pilot and he didn't do a checklist. And I asked him why he didn't do a physical checklist. And he was very dismissive of me, disdainful. He was like, 
it's not like I can't remember what I'm supposed to do. And I just thought, wow, that's a lack of experience. Because it's not a matter of memory. It's it's what we're talking about with your brain economizing. Mm -hmm. And it could economize you right out of your life. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what do we need to do to guard against that? But also, what do we need to do to wake ourselves up? Because with all scientists, with all trainers, the ability to literally observe and discern is one of the rarest of abilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think the ability to hold space for complexity and contradiction and paradox and, you know, like, yeah, because, because oftentimes it is, you know, oftentimes it's like, well, there's this and there's this, that's another cool thing about the field of applied ethology is it's always looking at like trade-offs in welfare yeah. objectively. Like, so if we do this, the animal will have better physical health, but they may have compromised emotional health. Yeah. Well, there's no mathematical way to sort that out. It's just complicated, right? So yeah. we wrestle with it and we work to optimize it. And we try to ask the animal, like, what has the most value to you? And maybe we put in our own subjective assessments of what we think might matter. But like, it's okay, I guess, that it's messy. And I think like to kind of go back to the dog training world and the pet industry, we've just oversimplified it to absurdity, you know, like all dogs need to learn, sit, come down, stay, heal. They need, you know, these vaccinations and this kind of a diet and three walks a day or whatever. Like we've drank the Kool-Aid of just dogs being simpletons and we just have to treat them as the simpletons they are. And then when it doesn't go well, we're like, well, what did we do wrong? I thought I did all the five things on the checklist that I was supposed to do it as a, as a good dog owner, as opposed to, you know, or trainers are really good if they just blame the previous trainer, you know, or blame whatever, you know, rather than maybe this is an animal who's having a really hard time having fitness in that environment. So the environmental concept of fitness, right? Mm -hmm. um, survival of the fittest two conditions, you know, fittest behavior, fittest form, fittest um, uh, you know, phenotype, uh, example of that species for that always changing set of environmental conditions. And we don't think about that with dogs. So we might put them in the wrong climate for everything from their coat to their behavior. Um, you know, in, in given conditions, you take a livestock guardian dog, you stick them in an apartment in New York city. Everything about that is like, you know, petting a cat backwards. And, and, and so right. it would be like taking the polar bear and putting them in the fl flamingo enclosure, or, you know, it's yeah. just not going to work. And so I, for me, I feel like the nice thing is about the phenotype is it gives us a good point of reference. Like, like any good zoologist is going to look at the phenotype and they're going to say, well, before we even get into the conversations about the nuances of this polar bear's welfare, we need to know who polar bears are. Right. And what in all likelihood is going to stack the deck for their best welfare. And that's something we haven't been doing for dogs. We don't go, well, this is a terrier and this is, you know, a toy breed and this is a guardian breed and this is a herding dog. So how might that inform our best practices yeah. for provisions for affordances? And then, um, and then uh, I want to go back to something and I can't remember if we talked about it in the broadcast or if it was before, but you you have mentioned a number of times about the fact that we are breeding animals to be dopamine junkies. Mm -hmm. And I have an analogy where it uh, that I use a lot. If you cannot motivate an animal, if you cannot understand how to inspire an animal to want to do what you need them to do, then you rely on skewing their genetics so that you can manipulate that. So like the dog is so driven, he's got to work all the time. He doesn't want to do anything else. He cannot rest. And the mm -hmm. analogy I use is if you were in the desert and you had a can of hot soda, Coca-Cola, and a spike, you'd be really glad you could drive that spike into the can and shake it up and get something to drink. But wouldn't it be easier just to pull the tap? Mm -hmm. And uh, the whole thing about dopamine and animals, we need to really look at it because we've gotten really good 
at breeding for that issue, but mm-hmm. also people in their drive to take advantage of it are really messing things up. Mm-hmm. I have seen trainers purposely create obsession over a toy. Yeah. So that they could use that yep. to make the dog obsessive about whatever else they were doing. And they even came out and said, oh, I had to, I have to stop now for a minute and remove this obsession for the toy. Why'd you put and, it? And in- we call this building drive, you know? And and so you have two ends of criminality to me in that. And I'm not saying like towards the people, individual who have who've ever played a part in them. I'm saying like from a cultural perspective, criminal criminally, you know, like that yeah, we, like need, we to need to look, look at, at what we're doing, folks. Right. Right. Look at it. Like, so we're breeding these high performance dogs so that we can win the competitions. And you know, we're breeding for a dog that's going to be chomping at the bit to do it in the first place which is already not something that nature would select for because it violates economy of behavior as rule number whatever in like the list of the top 10 rules for natural principles of survival and evolution. And so we've violated that. And in some cases, even their own self-preservation is another one of those cornerstone rules. And then this animal is like, what do you want? What do you want? What are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? What do you want? What do you want? And we're like, awesome. I can exploit that by funneling the drive in this one direction, getting you addicted to the crack cocaine of whatever it was you're just describing. That's a tug or whatever. And that way I can manipulate your behavior, push button like this. And boy, does that, you know, rack up my YouTube views or my TikTok views because, and actually I'm getting more and more concerned by the level of amazing training I'm seeing. It's more and more disturbing to me. It's more and more unnatural, like watching tigers walk on balls and circuses and things like that, where you're just like, but why though? Like if I have a dog who's so like doing this when they're healing a person that they're not looking where they're going, I don't find that very pragmatic personally. I find it a little disturbing. Yeah. Like over and over and over again, people stylize things out of all functionality whether it's the look of the breed itself or the action um i just recently did a really uh, interesting interview with um chris katsopoulos and he's from detector dogs australia and he's saying something similar but i agree with you when that dog is prancing around and not looking at anything where he's going and just lock gaze onto the handler. I'm thinking subluxation of spine. That's not right. good for him. Yep. I'm also thinking he can't actually be scanning the environment that way. He's not in his body. He's not even present. He's We've literally shaped minions. And like we're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And I'm like, I think it's really disturbing. Like, I... And on the one hand, here, here's my contradiction. Just like we were talking about a second ago, you have to be able to hold space for contradictions. Here's one of the ones that's emerged. We've created through artificial selection, animals whose best welfare will then be met because we've shaped their needs as potentials. As so like, you know, say take the, the predatory behavior of a given animal, like a polar bear or a puma or whatever. Those then become needs that have to have appropriate outlets of expression in captivity. So in theory, for our pet dogs, if we've created these dopamine junkies, we have to give them opportunities to be crackheads, right? Because that's what's going to fill their genetic cup. But then what are we doing generation after generation, especially as we're beginning to understand epigenetic inheritance? And it's kind of like a snowball that's just getting bigger and bigger as we go one generation to the other down the line. And I just go, oh, we know not what we do, you know, and and I, I'm That's watching. Exactly these... right. Yeah. And, and let's say just a word about genetics here. I, I just did a podcast with Julie Alexander and she is a breeder or was a breeder. And I had two of her Dobermans live to be 13. That's amazing for a Doberman these days. But she was constantly at odds with the breed you know, population because she's saying we cannot close registries. And this is a horrible thing that's happening. And people are all about, like, I see people all the time. 
get your dog spayed and neutered immediately. Well, Mm -hmm. they already didn't have enough pet dogs when COVID came and they're spaying and neutering everything. Where are we going to get the dogs from? And you can't, so you've got that issue. Where are we going to get pet quality dogs? Then you have the issue of the breeds. So are you a good ethical breeder? What does that mean? Well, if there's any evidence of a genetic problem in my dog, I will not breed it. I will only breed blah, blah, blah. Well, sometimes you're going to get a mutation, but most of the genes that are causing a problem were always in that population. Mm -hmm. But they were being mitigated by other genes as you continue to restrict the gene pool you make the breed unviable that's right this is a problem with dobermans this is Mm -hmm. a problem with cheetahs Mm -hmm. i don't know if anybody knows what the bottleneck was with cheetahs but the cheetah population is so genetically homogenous that it's as if they were all monoclonal twins different genders. Well, a regular great cat normally lives 20 to 25 years. Cheetahs are geriatric at 13 years. And we don't even know if we can find our way out. Short of using genetic surgery to reintroduce genetic diversity. And even then, would we know where to put it? or how to do it. Yeah, we don't know enough. And short of that, once you breed these traits out of the gene pool, you cannot get that genetic material back. Mm -hmm. So -hmm. when you're saying we do, yeah, we know not what we do big time. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at it from the perspective of this breed, we need to look at it from the perspective of the entire species mm-hmm. and all the species. And and I think that's probably a good place to wrap up for chapter one of all of this because um, I, I, I totally <laughs> Yeah, because you're you're right. And actually again, like let's take it as an opportunity to let our dogs be a canary in the coal mine for ourselves and for all the rest of the planet, right? Because they are they are right here at our feet, showing us the error of our ways. And we need to look at that for what it is, as opposed to um, make other other stories about it, you know? Um, and, and we need to study hold- do- about dogs. Yep. yep. Study about true dogs and what they've done, how they made their living in the wild. Mm-hmm. And get into that partnership, extend yourself, and don't just expect them to be changed. Right. So, Kim, I want to thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I Me want to too. do it again when we, as soon as we can get a chance. I understand you're going off to do um, some speaking very soon. Do you want to tell everybody? Sure, yeah. I'm going to be presenting at the Dogs in the City Conference, which is actually being put on by one of my students of the Legs course, who was really excited and inspired by all of these conversations. So she decided to create the first ever uh, Dogs in the City Conference in um, uh, Vancouver, I believe. I think that's where I'm going in Canada. Um, And then um, I'll be at the Aggression and Dogs Conference. Get on the plane, okay. Yeah, I know. I know. I should double check make sure I know where I'm going. Um, and um, and yeah, so and then we've got our legs conference, actually our second annual legs conference in December this year in Asheville, North Carolina. If people would be interested in attending that, we have, um, you know, a bunch of different speakers from our own membership with a variety of really interesting backgrounds. Um, we've got everyone from Daniel Shaw, who's a neuroscientist from the UK. Um, Kathy Murphy and Bobby Bambry from Behavior Vets are our keynote speakers, also neuro neuroscientists um, and veterinarians. Um, and we've even got someone coming from India. Kapil is going to be presenting on the street dogs that he works with there. So we're just going to have a really wonderful, diverse um, set of presentations on a number of topics um, that are very much along these interdisciplinary, complicated lines that we need to be looking at. Um, so 
And anyone that wants to find um, all uh, kind of our current offerings and get more involved in the conversation in the community, we have a um, website called um, familydogmediation.com. And there's courses for professionals and for families there. Um, and people are welcome to check those out and uh, join us in this growing conversation. We've got about 3,000 students in 25 countries right now. And it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope that a lot of our um, listeners will um, take advantage of those resources. Report back, everybody. We want to know your comments. Please share these great uh, resources with others and this podcast as well so we can get the word out. Y'all take care. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Take care, Casey. Bye-bye. Hey fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Covert. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.